All right. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode nine. We are the corresponding author. My name is Stephanie Hicks, and my co- I'm here with my co-host, John Michelli. And today we're going to be talking about the uh, process for applying for academic data science jobs. We're only going to talk about the um, application process. We're going to save the interview process for another episode. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. So first, we have to talk about whether or not you want to go down the academic path or an industry path. So as a data scientist, you could easily do both or either. You could also talk about going into government or taking a nonprofit position. So how do you think about this, John? Um, I guess I am someone who kind of goes down the middle of the road and always likes to keep options open. Uh, I don't know if that's always the best strategy. And I mean that in the sense that I applied for academic and industry data science positions. Uh, I personally, uh, one of the best pieces of advice I think I've ever gotten with respect to choosing positions that are maybe a few years or longer term, uh, somebody said, do you think you'll be happy living there for the next, let's say, three to five years? Mm -hmm. Um, Because Yeah. If it's not geographically pleasing or away from family or, you know, you don't like the cold and it's freezing, uh, that can make uh, bad days even worse. Right. So I thought that was that was an interesting thing that's like totally tangential to the job and the position and the work. But I always thought that was a good piece of advice. Yeah, where you live is very important. Another thing that I thought about when I was considering academic versus industry is mentoring and teaching. So I very much enjoy the process of teaching and mentoring. And so for me, I was more, uh, I was pulled more towards academia because I felt like I would get a lot more of that as opposed to being in industry. Though there are opportunities, I know people who work in industry to teach, for example, and to do some mentoring, but I felt um, like it was something that I I very much enjoyed and wanted it part of my day-to-day life. Absolutely. And I think the a lot of the allure about academia in many respects is the uh, intellectual flexibility, being able to kind of choose some of the projects you're on. But I think regardless of the position, I think industry has, has shifted um, some percent of time being like working on your own projects or your own ideas. Uh, so they've kind of taken a little bit of that. And then also regardless of the job you work in, no one is infinitely free. You're always going to have obligations to either pay the bills or, you know, get some of your funding or, you know, some of the responsibilities that, you know, you might love, you might not love, but they're obligations, right? So committees and mentoring and things like that, if that's not at the heart of what you want to do, you're still going to be doing it regardless. Right. I know. Yeah, that's very true. And there are a lot of service opportunities for people who work in industry to join. Um, for example, they join, um, associations like the American Statistical Association, they may join a committee to um, serve as part of that. So, Yeah. So I definitely think though, um, with what we're talking about today, the timeline for applying for these jobs is very different. Um, So I would say academia, or at least for statistics and biostatistics, which we're well acquainted, and I think most of the other fields, a lot of the application deadlines start around October 15th and go anywhere between like November 15th and maybe a little bit longer. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Um, I've seen them all the way up until like December and January in some cases, but it's pretty, it's getting more rare, I would say. Yeah, and I haven't ever. I've never been on a search, but uh, talking to some people who have, uh, I don't think there's any problem or downside really being 
first or being early, I think people are very okay with that because there are some places that really have a very limited selection on the people they can invite or the things they can fill. And I think they will wait for everyone to apply, but I don't think there's any downside of being early rather than later. Right. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So let's talk about some strategies for for looking for these jobs. Um, So once you decide you're going to go down the academic path and be an academic data scientist, another question that'll come up pretty quickly is, do you want to apply for tenure track versus non-tenure track jobs? So do you want to talk a little bit about what the difference is? Yeah. So we've talked about this a little bit here or there. Uh, So in many respects, a tenure track job is a contract for a position where you essentially have a timeline for tenure. So you come and there's a a discussion as to whether what the tenure process is, uh, promotions and things like that. But essentially you're on what's uh, many people will call the clock, which generally is around a six-year time frame for getting promoted to the uh, the next level. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean your first promotion will be tenure. Uh, so some places are uh, the associate. So you start as an assistant professor, you would go to an associate professor, and at some pl- places that is tenured, or you don't get tenure until a full professor. And the timelines are a little bit different, I believe, for associate to full professor in many institutions, but a lot of places it is relatively a six-year timeline for the first promotion. And there are midpoint evaluations about three years in to say, yes, you're in line, you are kind of on the trajectory we'd expect for most people who are going to get promoted around this time. And if not, your chair and some other mentors will, you know, help you out with some of those things along the way versus, um, and and I think in many respects, a tenure track position, there is an implicit assumption or maybe an explicit assumption about supporting yourself through um, funding, whether that be your own grants or other grants, whereas a research track is a bit different. Right. So you brought a lot up. So, um, okay. There's the concept of tenure, which I'm not sure we, gave an explanation of, I should have done that. So the concept of tenure is that if you do achieve tenure as a professor, then the university is acknowledging that you have made a significant contribution to the field, you're a leader in your field, and they want to keep you at the university and reward you by allowing you um, essentially a job forever. Now, that means various things at different institutions, and it very much depends on the kind of funding that your job depends on. So that brings up another question of, as you mentioned, the type of funding, hard versus soft money is the common phrase that people use. So hard money comes from tuition. So you come, it, you may have a job, for example, that is heavily dependent on hard money. And usually what that means is you have a lot of teaching requirements. In contrast, you could have a job that's heavily dependent on soft money. And soft money comes from grants, for example, but other sources, essentially non-tuition and service sources of funding. And so if you have a position that's uh, mostly hard, that hard money, then you're going to do a lot of teaching. Well, if you do, if you have a position that's mostly soft money, then you have a lot more flexibility in what you do. Um, And so this concept of going tenure versus not, tenure track versus not, is also very tied to the type of funding that your position is funded by. Yeah. 
I would also say that um, I, what I've been discussed or I've been told from other people is that tenure is also a protection measure of sorts so that if you're a junior faculty and you see things that you want to change or might be outspoken against, you may not be as much because you are in a bit more of a precarious position. And if you're tenured, tenured and more guaranteed a job, you might be a bit more um, – open to, I wouldn't say criticizing things at the institution, but trying to change things or do things that might be uh, a little bit um, more of a fundamental change that might not be as popular or might be popular, but might be outside of the of realm of research, whereas tenure kind of gives you a protection to say, you know, allows you to speak your mind a little bit more freely without some worry of as many ramifications. Yeah, I mean, I've thought about this quite a bit with um, many of my colleagues, and I should clarify, there's, I mean, for example, you could get criticisms if, if I'm outspoken about a particular topic, for example, that may show up, for example, in paper reviews or grant reviews, but that's going to show up whether I'm tenured or not. Like those criticisms and those implicit biases are going to be there pre-tenure and they're going to be there post-tenure if I'm very vocal about a particular topic. However, what I don't want to have happen and what I'm, I know my colleagues, other, several other people have talked to me about is that you don't want those criticisms to show up in the letters that are written for you when you go up for tenure, because those letters are a fundamental component to your tenure application packet. And so it is true, as you noted, that it can be a little bit scary um, pre-tenure to be more vocal about particular topics. And so there is this protection mechanism that is put into place for after you've received tenure, you can choose to be more vocal um, because at that point, there's nobody who's going to write you letters for promotion because you've achieved tenure. But again, those criticisms can show up in a variety of other places <laughs> as you navigate academia. Yeah, I've always thought it pretty funny with uh, academia in some respects. So I remember coming in uh, to my master's degree and like it was week one and, and I've, I've done this a bit, but it's very much in academia's vein to like ask what the next step is. So I just came in for my master's. I just made the decision to come here. I just decided Hopkins. I came and then one of my professors was like, well, what do you want to do after you get your master's? And I was like, I just tried to figure, I was just trying to figure this out. And it's kind of funny with respect to um, you've just finished your PhD maybe or you've finished and you've you've worked for a while, but it's it's always funny that you you've made the choice to maybe go into academia, and already they're asking you know what is your thoughts on like promotion or tenure where you know you haven't been at the institution yet, but I mean these are things you have to think about uh, before even kind of looking for the job. So it's not always one next step, but it always is like a future uh, looking kind of strategy going forward. That is so true. I, I try to strategize as well, and it's not easy. I'm, I'm not necessarily the best at it, but I do try that. <laughs> yeah, I would say, um, and this kind of will dovetail into the packet and what you have to put in there, but it does take, um, you, you should do, I'd say, at least some, not soul searching, but sitting down and really trying to think of what vision you may have of your future. That's not to say that you need one necessarily, but it's always good to sit down and think about that. It's like, what what would I feel fulfilled and successful in like five years if I was at this at this institution in this position you know what would I feel like oh that was a success versus not because I think that'll really allow you to focus on certain values you have and then also things that will come out in your packet right. um, and the application right 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 
Okay, so let's move into the types of positions. Say, for example, uh, you had mentioned a few, but let's try to name some of them more explicitly. So, for example, some of these academic data scientist positions, of course, could be, for example, a regular tenure track faculty at an institution, whether it's in computer science or um, biology. I mean, it could be in a variety of different places. There are also other types of positions that pop up and they're they're called different things. And I don't think that there's a specific title that people kind of have agreed upon to describe these type positions. But some of, some of them could be, for example, a research scientist or a staff scientist, maybe a research associate, um, an instructor I've heard before. Are there some others that you've heard? So I'm technically an assistant scientist. Assistant so, scientist. Okay. <laughs> um, so it's generally either called the scientist track or the research track at other medical institutions. I've also, uh, there's a differentiation. This is a completely different track that's called like a clinical track um, for data, for academics in like analytics or things like that. And that deals with kind of the data they work with. But in the most, for the most part, what I believe these to be are um, research positions that are funded usually in a different way, sometimes have a different promotion process, but generally I think of them as like a research assistant professor. That's another term that kind of gets thrown around rather than right. the standard assistant professor. And so maybe compare and contrast when you say a research assistant professor, what are some duties that you do not do that they do, for example, or um, vice versa? Yeah, that's, uh, I think that the hiring process is very different. Okay. So I think uh, tenure track jobs are generally publicized. A lot of times research track jobs are under a specific PI or under a specific project. So that's how the funding is generally set up. It's usually for a shorter time frame, and then you pick up your funding along the way in other projects. So I think it's a different kind of process. I will say I, I have interviewed for tenure track positions um, and the department didn't necessarily think it was a great fit for that role. And they did offer me a research track position. So um, it's not, but it's not, I've never really seen that many um, job advertisements that say this is a research track faculty position. Uh, there are some differences between how you are evaluated with respect to promotion. There are differences with respect to startup packages. So if you come and how much of your money is guaranteed for how many years is like kind of the startup, get yourself going. I will say that's much more common in tenure track versus research track. And then what I found, at least at our institution, the Hopkins, um, the number of letters and the, the, the things that you need to get submitted for your promotion and tenure package are a bit different. The expectations for having your own grants are a bit different, things like that. Um, I would say for evaluating, but the day to day, I think most places as a research track faculty, you can teach, you do research, you can, you can apply for grants. Um, so it's very similar to tenure track, but it's not always at different institutions. It's varied, I would say. Yeah. And what appealed to you about these types of positions over the tenure track? Uh, I think um, under the PI I am working with, we definitely had a good understanding as to what my roles would be. They That's definitely, really nice. yeah. yeah, they definitely allow me to pursue different things like much more software development than just papers. Right. Yeah, that's a big problem for me. So I'm tenure track and I also want to spend a lot more time writing software and addressing all the GitHub issues 
<laughs> on my packages, but I don't have time. I, it's hard for me to make that a priority when I know papers and a, a few other things are in software to an extent, but not necessarily making the software the most robust or the most production ready or addressing all the problems with it in a timely manner. That is not a priority compared to the things that I know I need to accomplish first to be able to be promoted in the long run. Yeah. And I think, I think you may have, you may have sent this to me or maybe uh, one of our listeners, Leo Callado Torres about genomic software and the funding mechanisms that are available for software development from like the National Institute of Health and how some of them have changed or gone away over time and how this might be, you know, a lurking issue overall. So we can definitely put that in the show notes. But I think it's interesting because in a soft money environment, right, you want to essentially get funded for software development in the sense that that software is being used to do biomedical research, but it's it's a hard sell on its own. And I think a lot of people end up writing in that as like a third or fourth aim into their grants. That is true. I do know of a new funding source that has popped up recently that is um, very supportive of open source software development, and it's the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. They have an RFA that they put out three times a year. So there was one, I think, in June or July then I'm guessing there'll be another one in the late fall, early winter, and then springtime, maybe like February, March. And there it's, um, I think their grant mechanism is a one-year award with the possibility of renewal after that point, but it's just purely to support open source software. And that could be something such as developing a vignette for a package. It could be addressing all the GitHub issues, say, for example, in a well-used uh, package and you just want to dedicate some time for it and you need to be able to support yourself to do it. So that I was really excited to see. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Are you an, are you an inbox zero person? No, not at all. I mean, I do try, but then I also keep to-dos in my e- inbox and that's... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm the same way. But there is there is something uh I, I'm not an inbox zero person, but I'm I'm trying I try to be a zero issues as much as I can. Oh, uh, I'm so impressed. <laughs> but but it's interesting because I do feel like there is a there is a, a stark level of satisfaction for me if there's zero issues, and I think that's more than if there were zero emails. I will tell you that as part of the advanced data science course that I'm teaching at Hopkins this fall, I demonstrated the the use of the GitHub API in my getting data and APIs course that I get a uh, lecture that I gave last week. And in it, I used, um, I checked to see how many open issues I had in my repositories on GitHub. And I think it was only two or three, if I remember correctly. So I felt very impressed with myself. <laughs> that, no, that, that's fantastic. All right. <laughs> um, okay. So yeah, so going back to some of the position names, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of variability, but also you just got to, I think you got to look at the advertisement to see what the requirements are, because they can be quite varied as well, um, depending yeah. on the name. And it's the same in industry. I mean, a lot of industry positions, there's quite a lot of variability. They'll say, for example, I'm looking for a data scientist, but in reality, they may be looking for a software engineer or a data engineer. They may be looking for a machine uh, learning expert. They could be looking for a statistician. I mean, there there are a variety of hats that could be um, filled. I mean, there could be a variety of positions that somebody is looking for, and it's very much all about identifying and, and reading the advertisement 
advertisement more closely and trying to get a sense of what do they actually want or what are they actually wanting to build or what are the requirements to be successful here? Yeah, I think that's interesting because in academia, it's kind of you know, three big buckets, assistant, associate, full in industry, there are a lot more gradations even within something. So yeah, like statistician one, statistician two, senior, things like that. So um, I think it's, it's good on, it's good and bad on both ends. I think in academia, you kind of have, I'll call them well-defined, vague, things to do for promotion. Uh, They're Mm -hmm. defined, but um, always recognizing exactly what you need to do might be a bit harder. Whereas in industry, it seems like the promotion, they have more gradation, which allows you to kind of fit in something that might be, you know, a bit more snug, but might be more appropriate for you rather than a larger bucket. Right. 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 Yeah, I know. I'm curious to see if the field or and within even academic data science will sort of merge on a particular naming scheme. So as you mentioned, like there's three big buckets generally for assistant, associate, and full. I'm I'm curious to see if like a similar paradigm will exist in the future specifically for a data scientist or if they'll just like be lumped in there as well. Yeah. Uh, or do you think it's a good idea to distinguish the two? Well, I think we've had these discussions at at Hopkins for sure that um, highly technical staff or faculty sometimes don't really fit in the mold of a lot of uh, hiring. And I think it's it's interesting being in a biostatistics department and that we've run into this many times, whereas maybe some other departments don't run into the same issues, um, or at least with, with, you know, analytics people, right? Yeah. I mean, we do hire, for example programmers. But I mean, that's not necessarily what an academic data scientist does. I mean, like, okay, so the the levels assistant, associate and full, that describes essentially the degree of seniority in your your department. But so I'm an assistant professor. But do you think we're ever going to have like an assistant data scientist, an associate data scientist and a, a full data scientist kind of acknowledging and giving the hat tip to the fact that you are a professor, but you're also a data science professor. I mean, or is it going to be assistant data professor of data science? Are we going to have, I mean, what do you think will happen? Um, I'm a, a bit of a, not a pessimist, but I definitely think the, you know, what we change to the system, the system is very hesitant to change for better or worse. So if it's, if it's going to be able to shoehorn something in there, like professor of data science or assistant professor of data science, that's much more likely to happen. Um, I will say though, this, a lot of our discussions really hinge on the fact of having a PhD, right? So a lot of institutions in order to get into the professorial track or the research scientist track, depending on what the titles are, many of them require a PhD, which I find a lot, very restrictive for certain people, especially if they've been in, in industry for a few years, if they have a bachelor's or a master's and they, they can prove, they proved clearly they can do the work and the research. That's very restrictive on the hiring process. So I would think for some of these highly t- high technical roles that something would have to budge a bit for those people because we want them in academia. Right. Yeah. So I know Lance Waller has uh, from Emory University has a really great paper that you and I wanted to discuss at some point related to evaluation of uh a very applied or data scientist essentially in academia. So maybe we can talk more about that in a future episode. 
Yeah, and I, I think a lot of his points uh, are about like promoting and allowing them to survive, uh, succeed in this environment. And I think we can at least touch on some of those concepts in the packet and creating your CV and customizing your CV to show that you very much are in the data science realm. Okay, sounds good. Do you want to jump into what is the packet? Well, uh, why don't you why don't you go and say what what was in your packet? Okay, well, I'll just I'll state generally what are what is expected or what I typically find as requested for an application packet. So, the application packet, at a minimum, uh, will realistically contain something called a cover letter. The cover letter you're probably familiar with, you might have, if you've ever applied for a job, you've probably written a cover letter before. It's like, hi, my name is Stephanie, and I'm interested in this position, and I think I'm a great fit because X, Y, and Z. I'm very excited by your company, or I'm very excited by this position to do the following things and be able to make an impact. Um, And so you're just sort of describing like why you're a really good fit or what's unique about that department or that place that you're very excited about. And then the second thing is a a CV. So there, your CV is similar to a resume, but um, it's a lot longer. Basically, (laughs) everything you've ever done is in a CV. And I know you have a lot of opinions on that, so I'll let you describe more about the CV. The third thing is a research statement. And so the research statement generally should contain information about your past and your current research interests and maybe your future research interests. So these might be things like, what's your plan for building your research group? Like, do you plan to have students, postdocs? Do you plan to collaborate? Um, So this could be for like the next three to five years. It could be longer term, but I mean, that's hard to predict (laughs) just three to five years. I mean, you really just want to write a story there. The idea is you want to clearly communicate what your vision is for your research What's hot in your field? What are the key limitations in your field? How does it complement existing expertise of faculty in the, that department that you're applying to? Um, okay, the fourth thing is a teaching statement. So there, again, this teaching statement can vary field to field. Uh, but if, for example, the position that you're applying to is mostly focused on teaching, then um, you want to have a lengthy teaching statement. However, if your position is mostly focused on research, like what you were talking about, like a research assistant scientist track, then maybe like a one-page teaching um, statement is sufficient. Um, And then, of course, you want to have maybe like three to five reference letters to be emailed and or snail mailed to the department. So that's like generally high level what an application packet should include. So what are your thoughts? I know you have a lot of thoughts on the CV, but do you have other thoughts there? Yeah, no, I, I think the thing about, a, you know, I think on resumes and stuff, you put like research interests and things like that. I think a research statement is very, very much more specific. Um, I would say like a lot of people, I think a lot of people put a lot of buzzwords on like, oh, these are my research interests. And if you, I don't think can do that in a research statement, mm-hmm. Yeah, right? You could put in, maybe I'm going to do this in the next five years, but you have to have, if it's not something in your standard wheelhouse, that's very clear from your CV, you're an expert in, you have to be, you have to put some real, real plans in that <laughs> document. Yeah. You have to put some hard work into that. <laughs> yeah. If you've never like, 
you know, done any machine learning, you're like, I'm going to do TensorFlow models and build a machine learning group. I think you have to put some well-defined milestones and strategies for that going forward. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, research statements could vary also field to field. Like I've seen anything from like one page research statement to 15 research, 15 page research statement. I think mine ended up being like maybe three to five pages. And even then I probably could have cut it down a little bit. I mean, what's most important is for you to be able to communicate to the department that you're applying to what your vision is. Like, what are you wanting? What problem are you solving? And how are you proposing to solve it? With what tools? What methods? What do you need to develop? Is it a new experiment? Is it um, is it gathering data? Is it like you're just going to spend the next five years gathering this massive data resource and making it publicly available? I mean, it just depends on what your goals are. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, f- 15 pages is a lot. I've seen that. So there are examples on the web of um, essentially example research and teaching statements. And I want to say these were more biological fields, but even then these were field, these were people that I felt were pretty applied and do a lot of data analysis. And when I saw that, I was like, what? (laughs) So then I asked a bunch of people in my field and I said, okay, can you tell me like the range that I should be (laughs) within? And they were saying like two to five is good. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. I think if you were maybe starting a lab or a full division, I could, I could see 15, but I mean, somebody has got to read that (laughs) uh, Mm. for the committee. So that is hard to imagine. I know. Um, but on the flip side, so, I'm, I am. I, you did say I am open to putting everything and anything on a CV. So the CV is different than the research. I mean, CVs that could easily be 25 pages. I mean, well, I don't know. It depends how productive you are. So say you're like an associate professor applying for a full professor position. I mean, it could be 25 pages easily. You could have had a long, long career up until this point. So it just depends on what stage of your career. If you're a graduate student, no, you're not going to have a 25 page CV. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I, I don't think so. Um, so I will say, you know, everything goes in there, including like, you know, obviously your education history, you know, uh, any papers, uh, especially if you are just graduating or finishing up your postdoc, I would highly recommend putting um, any publications that are kind of in the mix or that are submitted or under review. I would say um, some people don't weigh submitted papers at all. They only really weigh in review and published. So I don't think there's a downside still to putting ones that are, um, sorry, sorry, I don't mean submitted. So they can be submitted, which means they should be under review, but I'm saying like anything in preparation, a lot of people discount those pretty heavily because that could be anything between an introduction's written and the whole page is written. So, I mean, yeah, I could say like I have 15 manuscripts in preparation right now at various stages, including from just an abstract all the way to <laughs> like um, ready to press the submit button to a journal. I mean, there could be a variety there. So me personally, I'm more than happy to consider and weigh the preprints. So if there is a journal article that has been submitted and it's under review, if you can give a preprint link, like a DOI, that for me is essentially the threshold you have to cross. Like I'm much more likely to say, yes, this is a body of work. I acknowledge it's not peer reviewed yet, but you have completed and got into a point in which you have submitted it for review. Here you can see it. And especially if I'm on a search committee, for example, 
then I can go look at that link. I mean, I, I acknowledge it's not peer reviewed yet, but I know you have done essentially the bulk of the work to get it to that point. And so um, it may or may not be scientifically valid, but at least you have accomplished <laughs> getting it to that point. Yeah. And I would, if, if there are just from any reasons, the journal prohibits you from putting up a preprint, which is rare, more rare nowadays, but it's still possible. I I would just put that, I I would have no problem just putting that on the CV, be like no preprint available dash embargoed from journal or something just so, because that's going to answer questions that's going to like, you know, arise in your mind, for example. Right. I don't know. Yeah, I totally agree. I would, I think I would do the same. I don't, I haven't ever come across a journal that has said no to preprints, but I know that there are some, it just, that's not where I typically publish. Yeah. I've, I've seen it in like, uh, some of the more medical journals. So, um, stroke and some, some, some conferences, honestly, don't let some larger clinical trial data, stuff like that. But I would just put that in there, but I, I, as an academic as someone going into data science, I would also put a whole bunch of other stuff that a lot of people might not have in there. So like any software packages you developed in there and, and metrics with that. So some people put citations on papers on, uh, you can go here or there with that. Um, but I definitely would put downloads, uh, for software if you have. Yeah. So, yeah. Problem is keeping it up to date. So if it's an HTML site, you can, for example, update it with, um, more, uh, live statistics, but if it's a PDF, it's hard to update or keep updated. Yeah. So I don't have, uh, my CV connected to Travis CI, which is a continuous integration service, but I have a make file, which is a, essentially a set of commands that says when I say make, do all these things. So I have it automatically download from, um, CRAN logs, which is an R package repository that says the number of downloads from our studio. So I can update those relatively easily. Uh, GitHub and this other oh. ones are kind of more difficult. Can you share the file on the show notes? Maybe I want to see it. Yeah, <laughs> I would yeah. love to be able to incorporate the, the download button with my tech file. So the package uh, CRAN logs, uh, I think is a good one, should be able to give you a summary of all your downloads and things like that. From, is it only for CRAN or are there other um, package repositories that, that will work with? That's a good question. I think they have to have some sort of API, but I'm sure Bioconductor has some live statistic you can just download when you knit the document together, though. Yeah, Bioconductor, if, for anybody who doesn't know, is this um, a set of R packages that are specific for the analysis of biological data. So um, it's very, it's like a sister <laughs> pack or sister set of packages to CRAN. Yeah. So, and then there's also, for example, Neuroconductor that you're involved with. So, um, lots of different communities there. Yeah. And so okay, let's talk about customizing the application. So whenever I was applying to jobs, I painstakingly went to each department's website and tried to customize my application as much as humanly possible. And ways I did that were, for example, identifying what are the mission statements for that department. Sometimes this is often listed on their web page or, and then trying to demonstrate how I would be a good fit for moving towards that mission and accomplishing those goals. Another thing would be to visit the websites of the faculty who are in the department, and look at what their research interests are and how you might be able to collaborate with them or be able to um, work towards some of the things that they're interested in and how you would be able to better fit into the department, for example. So what are some other things that you did? 
So that's a, probably a lot more customization than I did. Um, really? Oh no, I won't. <laughs> I, I didn't do as much scouring of the websites uh, for people. I did that when I got to the interview stages a lot more, but um, I will definitely say, especially if you're applying to multiple different types of positions, you have to customize your cover letter. Uh, your CV for the most part, I think stays pretty stagnant um, for me. A CV, yeah. No, I'm thinking more about the cover letter, the research statement, and maybe the teaching statement. Yeah. Um, I would say I would probably, I probably have changed more of the teaching statement than the research statement in many respects, because I think my, I was clear, just this is the research I'm doing. I don't, I don't know if I really changed anything with respect to collaborators in there. That's, that's not a bad strategy. I think that also, you know, I don't think anybody gives explicit points for customizing the application, but internally, like you see something and you're like, oh yeah, I definitely know that they looked at uh looked at us. They are very serious about us. They took the time to do that. So I think it's a positive, even though they might not have something explicit, you know, for customization. Um, yeah. Okay. So there, let me give an example of why I felt like it was important to customize the research statement. So for example, I applied to both statistics and biostatistics departments. So statistics departments, they tend to be much more theoretical. They tend to um, look for different qualities in candidates than a biostats department, especially like, for example, our biostats department is in a school of public health. And so they are interested in influencing, hiring people who are going to be influential on public health and trying to make people live happier, healthier, longer lives. And so the goal there is slightly different than the goal of a stats department. And so I felt like the biostats departments that I was applying to, I needed to put a larger emphasis on the public health outcomes that would come from the methods that I was proposing to develop. While in the statistics, uh, the applications for the departments that I was applying to in the statistics world, I felt like I needed to stress what were like the methodological implications of what I was proposing. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think that's, that's definitely the right process to go. I don't think I did not apply to stat departments except for maybe one. So I can agree that that is a crucial delineation because those people are looking for very different research trajectories. And I think that's definitely the right way to go about it. Um, so even within, you know, kind of academic and almost field and subfield things, customization really works. So if you're applying across the gambit, you're going to need to to do some work making them a bit yeah. more customized. I mean, like even just within the world of biostats, for example, there's certain departments that are well known for certain applications. So for example, our department is well known for things called wearables and computing technologies. And so if, for example, I wanted to, to work in that field, or if I wanted to propose research in that field, then I'm going to highlight the work of the faculty and what they've done here, and then be able to contrast and say, oh, what I can do can supplement this and can make this even better. Um, but that requires customization, essentially. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's true. I think, you know, you got to remember that people are hiring not only, you know, another academic or someone in the department, but a, a potential colleague for the future. So anything that kind of anybody on the search committee that kind of it perks their interest up if you put something down there probably can't hurt. I will say, you know, don't go into a, in saying something where you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I know, right? <laughs> but say, you know, this is of interest. I just haven't had the resources here to work on it. I think that's totally reasonable to discuss. 
Yeah. And some, some academic departments are often looking for targeted searches. So for example, some departments may be only interested in hiring individuals to work on um, a particular type of data or within a particular area or application that's um, very relevant. So for example, electronic healthcare records within the field of statistics and biostatistics are very popular to, to work on right now. So a department may have a targeted search versus um, having a general search in which they're looking for any applications or any type of research. Uh, it just depends. Yeah. And I think if you're switching into maybe that field, maybe getting a K award or something like that, I think you'd have to just, again, just be very targeted in your statement saying, you know, I, my CV doesn't have things like this, but I believe the skills in X, Y, and Z can translate over here. And I think with an award like this, which I'm preparing or I'm applying for at this time would allow me to shift over to those things because that shows you have a plan and it's not just, oh, I kind of want to I kind of want to do that research. Maybe I, that kind of seems interesting and it kind of seems half-hearted or maybe insincere if you're not clearly defining how you're going to jump into that realm of research. Right. Yeah. Okay. So what about standing out in this process? Like what can you do inside of your application packet to stand out? Hmm. Um, I will say again, nothing that is related to research can't go in your CV. And I mean that in the sense, like if you make shiny applications or web apps or something that's even for things that you've done for volunteer work, but it's a data analytics thing, even if it's not in your um, computing wheelhouse or your research interests, I would still put it on there because I got a lot of discussions about things like that, even though they weren't at all, at all, at all in any of the interests that I, that I promoted, I will say, you know, it's it's the currency of our field. More papers, people tend to talk about those. Highlighting a specific paper and how you contributed or how you maybe did it start to finish somehow, I think is a really good thing to show like you can conceive a project or, or maybe not. Maybe someone else had it and it was kind of an extension of an idea, but you brought it to the finish line. That is a huge aspect of academ- academia that people really want to see in a colleague, I think. Yeah. And so as an academic data scientist, you might have published, you might have a lot of, for example, GitHub repositories related to different data analyses that you've done. Is there a good way to highlight that? Like one way I can think about is creating a website, for example, and then creating like summaries of the various projects and then the results, quick, like concise um, summaries of what you did, what you implemented, and then what you learned essentially. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great idea. And also like the papers, some of like a lot of your papers I know are like reproducible, right? So I, I don't think there's a badge necessarily for that, but it's highlighting those things. And then also one of the things with with documentations, right? A lot of the parts of academia are writing. And writing vignettes and long form documentation, really mapping out how you use a package, I think are a great combination of research and teaching at the same time. Yeah, that is true. I can, so, but also for those, there might be people, for example, who work with protected data. So it might have um, PHI, uh, protected health information. And so in that case, you might not be able to upload, for example, your data and your analysis and your report 
on GitHub. And so you can't link to it, but you could describe it at least in words, like on a website describing what you did, um, but not being able to make the analysis and the data available to make it entirely reproducible. Yeah, no, I, I think the reproducibility aspect is, is is interesting and nice about it, but I just want to say something like, if it is reproducible, why not just show it off, right? Because that takes a lot of time oh, and energy. Totally. No, no, no. I fully acknowledge that. Like, if you can make it available, I, absolutely. There's no reason not to because somebody will stand on your shoulders, essentially. Somebody will take what you've done at some point in time and do something with it. It might not be in your lifetime, <laughs> but somebody at some point might do something with it. And so making it as easy as possible for somebody to overcome that barrier of getting started and being able to stand on your shoulders is always a better thing. But I just acknowledge that there are people out there who work with very specific types of data that for whatever reason can't be made public or even just making their analysis, they can't make their analysis public. And so I don't want to discredit and say what those people are doing is not important because it's valuable and it is important. Um, but still providing summaries of what you've done in a clear and concise way can be very valuable, like in a website format. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, a, that's totally accurate. And it's, it's interesting because I feel like in some respects, like in certain resumes, you describe your role and how you added value to a project or a team or something like that from a position. This is kind of like doing that with respect to each paper or a certain subset of papers that you find really relevant or really showcase what you can do to show, you know, to say, we did this analysis. These are kind of the take home results. Even if you can't, Maybe not. Maybe you're not allowed to publish those, but just say like this was the overall goal of the project. We succeeded, and I did X, Y, and Z. That does lend itself sometimes to a website, and you'd be surprised. Like people look at your website a lot. Yeah, I I do find that. Um, the way I think about it is like, so if you've ever submitted a grant to the NIH, they ask for a very particular. Um, format for your bio sketch. And one of their requirements is a section called contributions to science. And you can list up to five contributions to science, whatever that means. <laughs> and you have to give essentially a paragraph description of what, so you, you give it like a title, uh, whatever your contribution to science was, some kind of theme. And then you give a one paragraph description of what your contributions to that particular area of science were. And then you can list up to four papers or preprints or software or products that you have built or created or written to um, that support as evidence for your contributions to science. So I, I took that idea and I just put it on my website. So I created a tab on my website called projects and it's essentially my contributions to science, except I broke it up a little bit more finer than just five, forcing everything to go into five categories. <laughs> and then um, I, for each, I wrote like a paragraph description of what my contribution to science, I mean, it doesn't say contribution to science, it's just titled projects. So and then I have like a quick bolded title and then like a paragraph summary of what my contributions have been towards that particular title. And then I list below it, like items one through five, for example, of specific things that I have done to contribute to that. So it could be papers, it could be software, it could be documentation, it could be a talk, it could be whatever. But then it allows people to just get a sense of what are the areas that I work in. And then they can quickly, as opposed to having to sift through, you know, 
all the papers and all the software separately in my CV, they get a really high level overview of what are the areas that I'm interested in working in and what are the contributions that I have made to date in these particular areas. I found that to be very valuable. and I think it would be a good way to stand out. That's great. You know, I, I would, I would agree. Uh, the last thing I can think of is if you've, even if you haven't gotten the grant, if you've written a grant, I might still try to highlight that somewhere because that is a lot of questions uh, about during the interview. If, if you get on site, it's like, have you written a grant before? Where would you plan on submitting? But if you've done that process or even been involved heavily in writing a grant in your uh, academic career at some point, even if it's unfunded, I still think there's value into putting it in there. I don't know where, but uh, I would definitely consider that would allow you to stand out versus other people. Um, even if they have a stronger CV, you're like, I've done it, I've applied, I've done a budget, didn't work out, but I still went through that process, which was super helpful. Yeah, that's that's exactly the advice I was given when I went on the job market. I talked about how the fact that I had applied for grants and not necessarily that I helped draft or create a figure for my uh, PI's grant, that I actually did the entire thing myself. And then, I mean, I had support, but I, I led and I wrote and I submitted essentially the, the grant by myself. Um, and I found that to be a really good conversation starter. People felt like, oh, that means you you have practice with this. That means you understand how much work it is to do this. And And one of the things that I learned from that process was that at the end of the day, I didn't hate the process. Like some people go into this process the first time they submit a grant, they come at the end and they're like, never in my life will I ever do this again. And then they run and they bolt for industry, for example. And then some people come out of this process and they're like, this is the best thing. Like I love grants. Granted, that's rare. (laughs) I would say more, most people come out of it and say like, eh, I don't hate this process. I mean, it was a lot to learn and I'm only going to get better over time and with experience and practice, like it will get easier and I'll get better, but I didn't hate it. And and so for me, I was like, okay, I mean, <laughs> I like to write. I didn't hate the process. I know I'm going to get better with it. So let's go with this. That, that's a good point. Now we'll stress to anyone who's considering academia, there are very different strategies for grants. So for example, I got someone submitted something to me today saying like, hey, this is an interesting research opportunity. We might be able to put a grant together. But that grant is due in seven days. Oh, so yeah, that's some like a people work in a very time. short time frame. <laughs> and that process, I don't care who you are, how many grants you've written, that process is never super fun. Um, no, that's not what I'm talking about. No, so, <laughs> yeah, so, no. so it's it's knowing when they're, they're available, taking the time and energy like a month or two out. Um, we also, in our department, have to know notify our uh, budget team to make sure that, and and those that are submitting the grant saying like, hey, here's some prep time. So we're not going to be saddling them with a whole bunch of requests very quickly, especially because, all, you know, it's not just me writing a grant necessarily, it's 10 other people. And if they all get all the requests at the same time. So I'm just saying like, if you see a lot of people doing a one or two week blitzkrieg sprint, you know, and they look stressed out beyond belief, that is either something they had to do, a collaborator made them do it, or that is the way they operate. But that does not mean that is how you have to operate. Right. Yeah, totally true. So one last thing before we move on. I So in my teaching statement, um, I wanted to stand, the way I wanted to stand out was I felt like it was important for me to stress the fact that I had um, lots of experience teaching, but coming from a perspective of um, doing research in that particular area. 
And so I pulled a quote from one of the a very influential person in, in the field of statistics called R.A. Fisher. And he said, I believe sanity and realism can be restored to the teaching of mathematical statistics most easily and directly by entrusting such teaching largely to men and women who have had personal experience of research in natural sciences. So I felt like it was important to state that teaching statistics um, can be very valuable for uh, for those that have experience in the areas of, of research, because you can bring a lot to the table. Like, for example, you can say, instead of just talking about linear models, you can talk about um, how, what kinds of problems are linear models applicable to, or like, how do you even get to a point in which you know linear models are relevant here, as opposed to just like coming into a classroom and saying, today we're going to talk about linear models or, or linear regression, for example, y is equal to x beta plus epsilon. You can talk about what's x, what's y, why are we interested in associating the x and y? How do we measure the strength of association between x and y? What does this mean? And then introduce linear regression. And so for me, I st- I've, one way I thought I would stand out would be to just make a quote at the top of my teaching statement to just kind of summarize my thoughts. <laughs> I think that's a great, yeah, I would say R.A. Fisher is relatively influential in the field of statistics pretty much. Yeah. Um, okay. So some other things that you might want to think about during the application process. So we've mentioned website. I, I just can't stress that enough. I mean, everybody, I feel like if you're going to apply for academic data science jobs, you need a website and they're so easy to make these days. I, I mean, how do you feel about this? Absolutely. Also, my opinion's always been if you're on a computer at work for 90% of the day and you don't have a website, that is a that's a strange thing to me. Yeah. Another thing, Google yourself. <laughs> so just like type your name into Google um, or look at your social media accounts. Um, if you don't have a, a Twitter account, for example, consider signing up for one, uh, even if you're not active on Twitter, it's a really great way to keep track of exciting research that's coming out as opposed to the paper overload of um, archive or bioarchive coming out. You can have Twitter, if you follow the right people, you can have Twitter kind of help you filter out a lot of this. (laughs) Yeah. And you always want to know what's the first thing that comes up about you. It could be, um, I remember mine was, uh, uh, it was from a profile from Hopkins, but it was like my master's picture. And like, they took that picture like day two. And like, I was wearing like a hat, like my, I was, I had my, I was all scraggly cause I didn't know we were doing pictures that day. So, um, yeah, I want to put that maybe to like number five on the Google hits, um, if I can. And yeah, I think that's just seeing what they're going to, what other people are going to see, um, coming out of the gate is a good thing to help you just mitigate anything that might not be what you want them to see at first glance. Right. So I just realized maybe this is the, the sec we just kind of accidentally did the segment about the unwritten rules of data science, <laughs> make a website for yourself, Google yourself, yeah. maybe consider signing up for Twitter. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have any other unwritten rules for data science when it comes to applications? Um, I will say you can apply to places, even if you have a low probability of you going there, but that yeah. probability should not be zero. Right. Right. I mean, you want to know like, A, would you be happy at this place, whether it's like a location thing or whether it's a um, just a general environment? 
thing, I mean, in the department, you want to know, like, will you be happy there? Two, do you feel like you're going to make an important contribution? Like, do you feel like uh, you would fit into the department? Um, yeah. And then anything else? I guess one of the unwritten rules that I didn't realize until I've gone on a couple of these, if you get an invited talk somewhere as a junior faculty or a postdoc or something like that, just be prepared for the discussion of, you know, hey, let's let's meet some people. Let's see what you would you maybe consider. Where, you know, where are you going? There's, you know, I'm not saying uh, people are trying to poach you in any in any capacity, but if you are at a, for example, a research track position, just acknowledge that if someone invites you somewhere, they may try to sell you on the place a little bit, and that's part of the whole process. Yeah, that's true. I have had that happen, but I'm very happy at Hopkins. <laughs> Which is, which is totally fine. I don't think any talk is bad. You get to meet people. Collaborations happen, happen out of it. But just just acknowledge like, oh, that might happen. And it's not, um, there's no no offense, uh, try, I don't believe, unless they're very, very aggressive. Yeah. One, one unwritten rule, which is kind of like a little bit relevant for this episode and a little bit relevant for future episodes, maybe I'll just say it now, is that um, advice that I've gotten about the application process is what's most important when you're going, when you're submitting your application is, are the papers essentially, if, so if you're going for an academic data science job or just an academic job, what's most important are the papers on your CV. And then what's most important during your interview talk is essentially your job talk. I mean, the interview is the job talk. Um, that can be the make or break it point for a lot of people. And what gets you the, the interview is essentially your CV and inside that are basically papers. I would like to think that it's changing slowly. So this was this advice was given to me by a more senior faculty. So I think to some degree, I think it's changing, but to a large extent, publications are essentially our currency. And that's how you get these interviews. So think long and hard and publish as much as you possibly can um, to increase your chances of getting an interview. I, I would agree. And the last thing I would state, though, for that is if you are looking at the CVs of people who are in the department, you have to do the mental mathematics of trying to rewind the clock on their CV when they were at the same stage you were in your, in your career because comparing – you now and them five years, 10 years out is not a fair comparison. Yeah, no, no. You have to <laughs> look at when they started and say, what have you accomplished? And like, what's the rate of publications essentially that you're producing at? Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So we'll call that the end. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Sean. Bye, everyone. Bye. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at correspond auth or my handle is strictly stat and stephanie's is stephanie hicks and you can email us at the corresponding author at gmail.com